Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. My name is Dr. Danielle Tate and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Abby Ross. We are both vestibular specialists and Abby is also a neurologic clinical specialist. We are joined today by Jeff Walter, um, who we're very excited to have here with us. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Danielle. Why don't you give us a little bit of the background Thank you for on yourself? Us, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks, Abby. Yeah, I'm a I'm a physical therapist. I work at a I'm a director of a balance center at Geisinger Medical Center in Central Pennsylvania. I work within an ENT department. Specifically, I work with three otologists and several audiologists and another physical therapist at our center. All the patients I see are dizzy or unsteady. Uh, I've been teaching, I've been a clinician for close to 25 years, and uh, I've taught for 22 years or so, uh, continuing education courses for, for vestibular physical therapists, occupational therapists, and audiologists. And most importantly, I was a clinical instructor for Danielle Tate. <laughs> I was going to say, we can't leave that out here. Come uh -huh. on. He's the one that kicked off all this obsession with uh, being coming a vestibuloholic. So I definitely have a lot of thinking to do to you for getting me into all of this. Um, without that clinical rotation, I definitely would not be here. So thank you I for that. Great. <laughs> I think everyone I know in the vestibular world has that same sort of story. They had a clinical instructor or they knew of someone in the vestibular world. Jeff, do you have someone in mind for your jumpstart to the vestibular rehab? Hmm. I have a lot of support in different ways, but probably like clinically, Neil Shepard was probably the one I would point to the most because I could call and ask him the dumbest question in the world and he would answer it, answer it so politely and never made me feel stupid. And um, So he was at the University of Pennsylvania at their balance center and I went to a lot of his courses and went down to his clinic and I would call him when I was confused and he always took the time to help me out. So I would probably cite him, number one. That's great. He was one of my favorite presenters at the Emory course, I have to say. Ditto. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> well, we, you are here today to talk to us about Veneers disease and some of the recent updates in the clinical practice guidelines. So um, why don't we start with a little bit of a background on Prosper Veneer? So I thought it'd be interesting to start with just a review of Prosper Veneer. So he was a physician, European uh, he, he passed away in the mid-1800s. Uh, before we get into Meniere's disease, he was actually known for being an advocate for, the, for individuals with hearing impairment to not seek out um, heretic treatments or ineffective treatments and to accept their deafness and learn to live with it. Uh, he was also one of the first to cite a connection between you marrying your first cousin and having a child with hearing loss. So he <laughs> recognized for the linkage between um, uh, interfamily marriage and the risk at a curing loss with that, which is well known. So those are other things he was known for, interestingly. So one year before his death, he gave a, a, he gave a talk, the linkage tiginous attacks and hearing loss. So, um, this went on to be called later on Meniere's disease. But one thing to keep in mind is he went over this one year before he died. So if you have anything important to say, don't wait too long to say it or you won't get a disease after you. Um, so it's <laughs> evolved over time. 
let's go over the diagnostic criteria for Meniere's disease, which was just updated in 2015, so semi-recently. So I just want to stress some things. One is, well, first, if your screen for Meniere's disease is to ask your patient if they have Meniere's disease, that's a lousy screen because 90% of individuals who think they have Meniere's disease don't. So just because somebody tells you they have it, it's not their fault they've been misinformed. So in primary care, you could say, I had ringing ear two days ago. What do you think is wrong, doctor? You probably have Meniere's disease without any further, like often without any further inquiry. So just realize that the diagnosis is handed out like candy at a bank to patients in primary care. So to really meet the criteria, yeah. So about two in a thousand individuals have Meniere's disease, but two in a hundred think they have it. Hmm. So the diagnostic criteria for the disorder is recurrent vertiginous attacks. They're usually disabling. And the time frame we're looking at to have what's termed definite Meniere's disease, I'm not totally in love with that term, but that's what the AAO used, is episodes that last a minimum of 20 minutes up to 12 hours. So that's the time frame you're looking for. And they're, they're almost always disabling. I've had some rare patients who are kind of insensitive that function a little bit during their attacks, but that is really unusual. It usually puts you down until it passes, and it's usually hours. Four hours is probably the average, three to four hours per attack, and it's recurring. So you need to have recurrent attacks um, to be diagnosed with Meniere's. Number two is just any kind of hearing loss, but a low to mid-frequency sensory neural, not conductive hearing loss. So the other attribute we look for. So those two can be objective because we can see a patient's eyeballs jiggling during a vestibular attack so that we know that they're having vestibular-related vertigo. And we measure with an audiogram a low to mid-frequency hearing loss. The next attribute we have to rely on the patient for, we can't measure it. And that's a sense of fullness in the affected ear and tinnitus. And the tinnitus usually matches where you're losing your hearing. So it tends to be a low-pitched tinnitus. That's important to keep in mind just in general when you're screening patients, you're trying to figure out what type of hearing loss they have. If you lose hearing in your high frequencies, age, or sound exposure, you usually get a high-pitched tinnitus. With ears disease, you lose frequencies first, you get a low-pitched tinnitus. So your tinnitus usually matches where you're losing your hearing, and it should not be pulsatile, the tinnitus that they have. So it shouldn't be in sync with their pulse. So those are the diagnostic criteria for definite Meniere's disease. The last Part of the criteria is other reasonable causes of dizziness have been ruled out. You don't have BPPB, you don't have MS lesions low in your brain, uh, you have no history of stroke, no tumor. So you've had an adequate workup to look for other reasonable causes of symptoms. So that's just some background on the disorder and the diagnostic criteria. Thanks. So what yeah. exactly is the the purpose, or not the purpose, but the reason behind um, Meniere's disease developing? What's the etiology? What's causing this? That's a really good question, Daniel. When <laughs> I first started into this 25 years ago, I thought, you know, I'm a young whippersnapper, and I thought, I can't wait. I bet you in five or 10 years, we'll solve Meniere's disease. And if not then, by 15 years, we'll, we'll understand Meniere's disease by then. We'll know the cause and so what I've learned after 25 years is there, I think pretty strongly, there isn't the cause. So I don't think there is one cause of Meniere's disease. One attribute that's 
that's present with the disorder, and this gets confusing, is the ear demonstrates hydropicness. So when what's hydrops, hydropic changes are, it looks like your membranous labyrinth is engorged with extra endolymph. It's distended, it's dilated. So follow this for a second. If you have Meniere's disease in your left ear, if you look at these, you have high drops. There's some older studies that suggested you could have Meniere's without high drops. They probably included some individuals with migraine in their study. So we get really strict on diagnostic criteria for Meniere's disease. It appears that they all have high drops. But you can have hydropic changes, but not have the symptoms of Meniere's. All right. So it's present consistently in individuals with Meniere's disease, but it can be present without you having Meniere's-like traits with your ear. So that's an anatomic change that occurs that we're pretty certain about. The big mystery is, well, what causes that to happen? And that's what's not clear. And probably an analogy I can give you is, Meniere's disease is like, I don't know, pick a city in central United States, Chicago. So just think of Meniere's disease in Chicago. There's a lot of ways that you can get to a town, the city of Chicago. There's lots of different routes you can take. And it seems like with Meniere's disease, there's a lot of different routes you can take to get to the point where your ear behaves like you have Meniere's. So kind of think of it as different highways you can take to a final endpoint uh, as a good way to look at it. Different theories behind it. There are some that believe that actually saccular otoconia get loose and entrapped and end lymphatic causing a backflow of fluids. So some believe particles are the cause. Support for that would be it's probably slightly more common in women. And we know, for, we know that BPPV is clearly more common if you have Meniere's disease. So that's some support for it, um, but that's one theory behind it. There's always that it's that there's genetic predispositions um, because if you have a close family member with Meniere's, you're more likely Meniere's. There's some theories that center around autoimmune factors as a cause for Meniere's disease. Allergy, there's probably more support for allergy being involved with Meniere's disease and uh, autoimmune disorders. Some believe there's a viral trigger for it. There was some literature a long time ago that cited trauma as being a risk factor for it. So it's really, it's still a medical mystery, to be honest with you, the etiology of it. But we just know that there's this trait of high drops. Interestingly, I think in the future, and there's some institutions, if you have a high-powered 3T MRI scanner and you inject dye into your patient at the right time intervals, you can actually on MRI see high drops. So I think right now we get MRI to rule out any other, to help rule out some of the other causes of your dizziness. So it's like it helps to exclude other causes, but I think in the future it'll still be helpful for that purpose, but we'll be able to see hydropic changes in the membranous labyrinth, especially in the area of the utricle and saccule on MRI. So I think that MRI can be helpful not only in excluding those other causes of dizziness, but including finding of high drops, which would be really helpful in sorting out, hopefully, migraine versus Meniere's, which is a, a debate with individuals when you see them because they can have overlapping traits. That's a good right. point. Question for you, Jeff. If you do suspect this patient has Meniere's disease or they have a known history already before they see you. 
how are you in patient-friendly language explaining to them what's happening? I basically, in a, a simpler way, go over what I just went over with you, but I tell them that it's not clear why this happens, unless there's something in it. Like if they tell me they have two close family members with it, then I'll probably stress more that it can run in, in families. But I just get out an, a nice illustration of the ear and I show them how the fluid pockets expand and that helps them understand. That's probably the mechanism for the fullness that's involved. Um, so I go over that and that we know that that's one of the changes that occurs with it. And you also have to be honest with them that there's really no clear evidence be done to help them with their hearing, help remediate their hearing loss, recover their hearing. There's certainly hearing aids, crossover aids like that, even maybe cochlear implants that can be done to help restore their hearing. But this itself degenerates your hearing and there's no clear treatment that restores that abnormal hearing. Same thing with the tinnitus, same thing with fullness, but most patients care the most about the attacks of vertigo and that's what can be treated. So there are effective treatments available to curtail their, their, their attacks of vertigo. And so we kind of go through what those treatment options would be as um, they go through the disease. And as physical therapists, that's almost more of a um, referral or a recommendation to get them to the right person. Because if it's unstable, right. untreated veneers, we're not doing much for them in the terms of exercise wise. There, those treatments for okay. veneers, for the dizziness, that's got to be remediated in a different way versus exercises. Once it's treated and yeah. they've had whatever treatment was appropriate for them, then they can come into physical therapy and that's when it's appropriate. But doing gay stabilization exercises right. twice a week for six weeks is not going to help a veneers patient um, before treatment. Totally agree. And actually that's clinic. So we're going to go over the clinical practice guidelines for veneers disease that were just published in 2020. Just one thing to realize is this is um, these guidelines were um, generated by the AAO, the American Academy of Otolaryngology, who included pretty much everybody on their panel but a physical therapist, which was mysterious to me. But anyhow, so it, you got to realize the background on those that developed these guidelines. It's mostly physicians um, on the biologist and um some other multidisciplinary panel members, but we vestibular rehabilitative um, professionals weren't really well presented on the panel. Um, so that's a realize. <laughs> I agree. I say it on a podcast. Uh, so I'm just going to go over some of the um, clinical practice guidelines. Not all of them. Some of them are pretty sensible. One thing to realize, Meniere's, before we get too critical, is very difficult to study because I could have an individual that I see that clearly has Meniere's features, and I could say, hey, I got a cure for you. Here's some M&Ms to take for the next three weeks, all right? Chocolate candies. And their episodes could just, on their own, just coincidentally stop. So the disorders really, it, it tends to flare and attacks tend to occur in bunches and then it can go quiet for weeks or months and so it becomes very difficult to determine was that cause and effect from your treatment or was it just the natural course of the disease it is a very difficult disease to design study trials that have adequate power demonstrate that the intervention you're employing is effective so it's been very 
difficult to study some of the interventions that are done for those with Meniere's disease when we look at stopping their vertiginous attacks. So that is a big hurdle with Meniere's disease is you need, you have power issues with study design when you're looking at interventions for Meniere's disease. So I'd go through some of the statements. One is, is that obtaining audiometric testing is a strong recommendation when you suspect Meniere's disease. So if you do suspect you, that the individual you're seeing may have Meniere's, it's important to get them set up with, usually when you get them set up with an otologist, they will get audiologic testing, but they need the audiologic testing because the principal finding we look for is that low frequency sensory neural hearing loss, um, which can be tricky to obtain because we have to remember with Meniere's disease, the hearing loss fluctuates. So sometimes you need serial audiograms done until we can where your hearing's down in the low frequencies. The best time for a patient to get a hearing test is when they feel their hearing's dropped. But often when their hearing drops, that's when they are at risk for a vertiginous attack. And patients don't want to go anywhere when they're in the middle of a Meniere's-related vertiginous attack. So they're hard to get into the clinic when their hearing's down. So that can be difficult sometimes to obtain is getting that hearing measured when their hearing is suppressed. As the disease progresses, it's not as difficult to obtain because the hearing loss is progressive but fluctuant. You have a better chance of catching it over time. So that was a strong recommendation. Another not strong recommendation but recommendation is to assess your uh, patient for vestibular migraine because of the overlapping features. So the paper did talk about the importance of making sure does the subject have vestibular migraine or do they really have Meniere's disease and going over some of the differences Briefly, some of the differences. With Meniere's, the attacks tend to be more disabling. Not that migraine-related dizziness can't be disabling, but it's less likely to be completely disabling. With, with migraine, the attack duration is a lot more variable. Meniere's disease, we expect many minutes or hours and not much outside of that. And then do they have a, a hearing loss over time that's progressive? We expect that with Meniere's, but not migraine. So those are some of the features to keep in mind um, when you're trying to discern the difference. The other thing is the patient's age. If your patient is 80 and never had any migraine activity throughout their life and they start getting vertiginous attacks, it probably ain't migraine. If they're <laughs> 80 years old and they haven't had any migraine activity yet, it would be a little bit more likely to be Meniere's. You're never too old to get Meniere's. Meniere's just occurs with age. We rarely see... Meniere's in kids, or even really in teenage years, 20s, it really is much, much more common age 30 and beyond. Whereas migraine, you can see all the way down into kids. Um, so always keep in mind the age of your patient um, with those. Uh, they talked about should individuals with, with Meniere's disease seek imaging or should they obtain imaging? That was actually left as an option and not a recommendation. So if you have a pretty good history for Meniere's and you have that low frequency, low, uh, frequency sensory neural hearing loss, the panel, there was no consensus that imaging was actually really needed in that case. Um, but I think there are a lot of otologists that still get imaging uh, for suspected cases of Meniere's. But with the clinical practice guidelines, imaging was considered an option, not a recommendation or a strong recommendation. Uh, with routine use of vestibular testing was a recommendation against it. So I first read that, I thought, oh, that's peculiar because it's, it's often helpful, I think. 
their rationale for not recommending routine vestibular testing was access issues. They were concerned patients would get the testing done and it would delay diagnosis. They, there was some argument within the paper that if the history is straightforward and you have that low frequency sensor neural hearing loss, that you probably don't need vestibular testing in those cases. But there, if there is a question of the diagnosis or if the patient has atypical traits, they endorse the use of vestibular testing. So you just want, they didn't want to state that the testing was routinely needed, but that it's more commonly needed um, when the history is a bit atypical or there's some features that told, don't totally make sense for the disorder. So that was another uh, clinical practice guideline regarding the NEARS. Well, that, that makes sense to me just because in our healthcare system now, we have this really bad habit of over-prescribing imaging and testing. And even with the amount of resources that we have for vestibular testing in certain areas, it could be a long time before somebody actually gets in to get their testing done, which could either delay diagnosis or delay treatment if it is something else. So it makes sense that having that routine testing, especially when we, you know, we were just mentioning before that an MRI, they have a very specific type of MRI over a series may show us that there are some issues with uh, high drops is not saying it's definitively going to find something. So if we're, if that's not going to be kind of the nail in the coffin every single time, then routine testing can probably get to be taxing and difficult to, to undergo. Yeah, I can tell you from 25 years of experience, in every patient I've seen that has a history that's really solid for Meniere's disease, I can't remember one case where we found anything relevant to why they're having vertigo. I mean, we found some things that had nothing to do with their dizziness on an MRI, but I don't think we ever found anything that changed our management in 25 years when we've had histories that have been real consistent with veneers and we've seen that low frequency hearing loss. So I think it can be argued that it, it's probably not needed. The other thing um, to keep in mind is vestibular testing is laboratory testing is notorious for being done poorly. So just because a patient obtains it, there's probably like a 50% chance it won't be done right anyhow. So what's worse, no information or wrong information? I mean, you can argue that sometimes you're better off with no information than wrong information. So I think that's another issue is that vestibular testing is often done so poorly that you can't trust the results half the time anyhow. When we see patients at our center that come in with testing already done, it's gotten a little bit better, but I'd say historically half the time we have to redo it because what was done looks atrocious. Well, so, you have the luxury of redoing that. Like a lot of, so where I was up in Maryland before, I can't tell you how many tests that we would have come in, VNGs, that be able to see the tracings and know that the testing was done wrong. And then having to either fight with the patient or fight with the doctor about, no, I don't think that this is the diagnosis you've reached correctly. I think this is something else going on. And it's a difficult dance to uh, to dance just because you can't argue against the gold standard of, of what's considered for testing for vestibular function. So that, that definitely I, makes it difficult. This could be like a whole nother podcast, but <laughs> briefly, it's important to understand this caloric testing, which is one of the principal components of VNG testing. There's a lot of recent literature that caloric responses in individuals with Meniere's can be substantially diminished, not because their canal doesn't work, but because their canal's hydropic. So we've changed our interpretation on VNGs for individuals with Meniere's, suspected Meniere's, when they have a, a weak response. So say they have a 50% weakness. In our interpretation, we cite that the patient either has vestibular hypofunction or an alternative consideration is they may have a hydropic canal because we know in Meniere's disease, 
the vestibular ocular reflex is preserved well into the disease. In fact, the gain of the vestibular ocular reflex is sometimes enhanced slightly in Meniere's patients. So they don't lose vestibular ocular reflex function. I think they get distorted vestibular function. And the caloric can overestimate their degree of vestibular loss. So you have to keep in mind when you get weak calorics on individuals with Meniere's, it may be their anatomy and not the, it's not that the, their neural tissues aren't viable. So that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. Okay, so they also looked at the use of vestibular sedatives. It was a recommendation that patients use them only during their attacks, not in between attacks. They emphasize they don't ward off attacks, but that it's reasonable to use a vestibular sedative during an attack of Meniere's. That was a recommendation. You get into some of the specific treatments that are trialed for Meniere's disease, they looked at. So the dietary restrictions patients are put on, what's the evidence base for them? It's atrocious. How many, I'll ask Abby this, because I don't know, I, I think Danielle knows this because I talked to her about it. How many controlled trials do you think there's been on the use of a low salt diet in individuals with Meniere's disease? Controlled trials in yeah. the history of the world. You're very close, Abby. A whopping one. <laughs> There's been one. And that's a common thing that, like most otologists in this country, prescribe a low salt diet for individuals with Meniere's disease. And we have, and the only controlled trial that was done demonstrated that it really didn't seem helpful. So it's, that's something that's commonly done with very little evidence of its effectiveness. Now, a lot of physicians feel there's anecdotal evidence that it's helpful in patients. But again, we have to remember this disease, again, if you do nothing for it, it you can stop having vertiginous attacks for weeks or months. So anyhow, there's the, the panel um, did not find evidence for the use of low-salt diet in Meniere's disease. Uh, even outside of Meniere's disease, I have some patients say that they were recommended a low-salt diet no matter what the vestibular diagnosis was. Well, that's like, that's sort of like smoking. Like when a patient asks me, because yeah. I smoke, I say, yeah, probably. I mean, just to get them to stop smoking, but it probably doesn't. I mean, you know what I mean? I think sometimes physicians are just like, well, it's good not to use a lot of salt anyhow, so let's just add that on. Yeah, going to help lower the patient's blood pressure, make them more healthy. But yeah, I agree. I hear the same thing, Abby, but it's probably not real helpful in my opinion, but I don't know. Uh, it looked at the use of another common treatment is the use of diuretics. Same thing. We don't have an evidence base for using diuretics for patients with Meniere's disease. So water pill is commonly employed. Um, we don't have a lot of evidence for that no good quality evidence for it. Steroid injections, same thing. We don't, there's no consensus evidence on using steroid injections for individuals with Meniere's disease. So this is kind of depressing when you look at the evidence base behind some of the conservative things we try to control Meniere's. There's just really not a strong evidence base for any of the conservative treatments, to be honest with you. One conservative treatment that was recommended against is the use of a, a pulsed pressure. It's the common device is called a mignette device. So not only is there not uh, evidence for it, they felt like there was enough evidence garnered at this point to recommend against using it. A, it's expensive. B, 
So this is a pulsed pressure device. So it's sent, you have to insert a tympanostomy tube into the patient's tympanic membrane, which by the way, causes hearing loss. It causes a conductive hearing loss when you insert a tube into a patient's ear. So one thing they talked about is, well, we're already working with somebody that's hearing impaired. And now we're adding a little bit of a conductive hearing loss onto their hearing impairment. So that was one thing that steered them against recommending it. Also, it just, it doesn't seem effective. I think it's a treatment that will look back in 50 years and people will be like at museums laughing about using this device to control Meniere's disease that we used to insert a tube into a patient's ear and puff pressure into their ear to try to control their Meniere's. So we're at a point now where we feel good against against use of that device. So if a patient asks you about it, I would tell them that they, I don't. I wouldn't recommend that pursuing it. It's effective at extracting money from your wallet. It's pretty expensive, and there's just not an evidence base for it. Okay, on to something that's more hopeful is they did offer the recommendation of the use of intratympanic genomycin therapy, and those of us that see the nearest patients a lot, this treatment is probably, I think it's the most effective treatment that an otologist can do for a vestibular patient if they're appropriate for it. Um, it's really, it can really restore quality of life. So for those that aren't aware, genomycin is ototoxic. It's oh, four to eight times more vestibular toxic than cochlear toxic. So when we inject it into a patient's middle ear space, it absorbs through the round window into the inner ear in about 85 to 90% of subjects. There, it's impermeable for about 10% of the population. That's why it fails about 10% of the time. But if the drug gets in there, it's pretty effective at eroding your vestibular hair cells. And it, so it creates a stable vestibular loss. And there's a nice body of literature that demonstrate that that's an effective treatment to stop vertiginous attacks. Also, it's the treatment we choose to do for drop attacks from Meniere's disease also. So the panel offered pursuing that as a recommendation, especially if your hearing loss is advanced because you have less hearing to lose then, and if your attacks are frequent. Most of the subjects we see that pursue that, we wanna hear that they're having an attack at least once a month or more than once a month. The downside to the injection is it can cause some chronic unsteadiness but usually uh, patients can compensate decently for that. And that's where therapy can come in handy is after genomycin injections, going through vestibular compensation exercises with the physical therapist is where, you know, rehab comes into play. They also talked about ablative procedures. There's a labyrinthectomy that's available. That's a surgical procedure that destroys your ear. The downside to that is you will lose your hearing, all of it. If you've already lost all your hearing and you need quick control, actually that provides assured quick control of your vertiginous attacks or drop attacks because we, lose, we use really low dose genomycin and it can take two or three injections until it works. And occasionally it doesn't work, like I said, in 10% of patients. But if you're having somebody that's with really frequent drop attacks, you might want to pursue um, a labyrinthectomy if they have very poor hearing, highly active vertiginous attacks and drop uh, drop attack episodes, which we call otolithic uh, uh, to market events, where a patient just falls unpredictably. They can be very dangerous and life-threatening. Um, if they need quick relief of those, then the labyrinthectomy would be recommended. Uh, regarding vestibular therapy and the clinical practice guidelines, so recommendation four, in their opinion, based on 
evidence quality level A, that means multiple randomized controlled trials, the use of vestibular therapy after an ablative procedure, thumbs up. Use of vestibular therapy for an individual with active Meniere's disease, thumbs down. So they did not recommend the use of vestibular therapy, obviously for a patient who's having recurrent spontaneous attacks, but after ablative procedures, uh, thumbs up. They did not, it was, I was a little disappointed. I thought that they should have had a recommendation about assessing individuals with Meniere's for BPPB because uh, there's a semi-recent study that demonstrated that about 40% of individuals with Meniere's disease get eventually get BPPB in their same ear. I think it's always important as a therapist, when you're seeing somebody who sounds like they have Meniere's, to still inquire about positional dizziness and still do positioning tests because it's not uncommon for a patient to have Meniere's and BPPV, and we can treat you know, their BPPV component of their dizziness, even though we're not real successful in treating um, their Meniere's-related attacks. So I really think there should have been a recommendation in there about patients with Meniere's disease completing positioning tests to assess for secondary, we call that secondary BPPV, but it did not make, they did not delve into it in their uh, clinical practice guidelines. We've mentioned you know, another, before. oh, sorry, Abby, go ahead. I was just going to say another point that, I mean, wouldn't make CPGs, but even if you don't put a patient on program per se, just having an initial eval with the patient, we tend to be the profession that has the time to educate and explain. And just that one session with a patient with Meniere's, I think, can really change their life um, because they might not have heard all of this information before, right? Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, at our center, when we're referred to a patient who truly sounds like they have Meniere's disease, they still get a, an evaluation with me and our otologist. If they haven't had one done yet recently, they get an audiogram as a, like a baseline. That's what they come in with because we often, and our otologist wants to know the status of their balance system, not just their vestibular function, but they want to know do they have unilateral visual loss? Do they have somatosensory loss? Because that impacts the treatments that they end up choosing with the patient. Because for example, if your patient has peripheral neuropathy and visual loss, uh, the otologist is not crazy about ablating their vestibular function because you're gonna create a whole different set of problems there where the patient's gonna be chronically quite unsteady. So I think it's important oh. for them to get a good balance assessment when they have a history of Meniere's. Yeah. Sometimes too, it's good just to talk to these patients that think they have Meniere's disease and educate them because I can't tell you how many patients I've had come in and tell me they have Meniere's. And I said, well, when was your most recent hearing test? Well, I've never had one. Well, how yeah. can you be diagnosed with Meniere's disease if you've never had a hearing test? So we sit and I educate them because here's this patient thinking they've got this debilitating you know, disease for the rest of their life that things are going to get worse and there's nothing they can yeah. do. They and probably told an ER. Yeah, they probably told like an ER resident that their ear felt full. Mm-hmm. And okay, you might have Meniere's disease. <laughs> that's how, <laughs> literally, that's often how the diagnosis is handed out based on one of the four symptoms and not all four that we talked about. And only after seeing the patient once. I mean, there's so many times where patients will go in with these complaints. They've seen the doctor one time and they leave with a Meniere's diagnosis, whereas it's something that really should be tracked over time, monitored, yeah. and then um, assessed, you know, to see what changes and what how things progress. So that's, that's really yeah. interesting. One other thing I didn't mention that was interesting is there's a recent study that looked at, <laughs> sort of interesting, when you're suffering from your disease, they looked at different diseases. 
what's your perceived quality of life during your mm -hmm. suffering from your disease? Meniere's disease was at the top with end stage AIDS. How wow. poorly you how poorly you feel when you're having an attack. There weren't other diseases that they could find where patients felt so poorly. And I thought that that was interesting, that it was right up there with, you know, it was as high as anything. There wasn't anything higher. So that just gives you an idea to the degree of suffering patients have during their attacks. I see guys that are like otherwise macho or women that are tough and boy, Meniere's attacks, they just dread them. Dana White, who's the UFC fight promoter that some of you may know, you know, he's a tough, burly guy. And he said he'd rather get in the ring. He has Meniere's disease. Um, he mentioned that he would rather get in the ring for a heavyweight fight. And he's not a heavyweight. He's not a fighter. He's just a promoter. But he'd rather get slugged in the head in a fight than to go through a Meniere's attack, he said. Oh. It just it kind of puts into perspective how poorly you can feel during uh, vertiginous attacks with Meniere's. Patients often really, really dread them. Well, even in between, I mean, the spontaneous nature of the symptoms and not knowing when they're going to happen, if people can plan for vacations or special events and be well enough to go through with them is just, it sucks the quality of life right out of things. Even just being on a golf course. I mean, down right. here in Hilton Head, South Carolina, so many people golf and some of them are terrified to get out there because they're not going to be able to get back into the club or back to the cart, or they're not going to be able to have their friends bring them back. It's it can be really terrifying in between episodes too. It kind of changes the entire way somebody lives. And that's another that's another role that we can play as vestibular physical therapists in terms of the stress and anxiety management of it because we know there's a psychological impact. Why wouldn't there be, right? If you have these spontaneous debilitating attacks. Um, the other thing I was gonna ask you, Jeff, and I don't know if there's an actual answer, but when it comes to the, the injections or even the surgical procedure, at what point, I know you want to, to hear that this patient is having frequent attacks, but at what point then do you decide, okay, we're going to go this route? So a big factor is degree of hearing loss. So the more hearing you've lost, the better candidate you are for an ablative procedure or surgery. If you still have if you're in the early stages with your Meniere's and you still have functional hearing in your involved ear, you'd be a little hesitant to cash that out. Um, so that's a big factor. Attack frequency. So again, how often the attacks are occurring, how long they've been going on for. Oh, there's a magic number. I mean, a lot of it's up to you educate the patient on what their options are. Mm -hmm. um, how much it's impacting their life. Frankly, if somebody's sedentary and very inactive, they're less interested sometimes in pursuing those more aggressive treatments. But if somebody's a painter and that's their livelihood, and that's you know, or they work for the phone company where they're at heights all the time, they're more apt to be interested in a more aggressive treatment. So mm -hmm. individuals that are highly active usually are more interested in the more aggressive treatments, whereas sedentary individuals are not as interested in those ablative treatments. So those are some of the, I'd say the common determinants. The other one's anxiety. I think individuals that struggle with high anxiety tend to pursue the more aggressive treatments um, because like Danielle said, it's like always hanging over them that they could have an attack. And um, I think that's another factor that plays into their pursuit of an aggressive treatment. 
Well, we just want to thank you, Jeff, so much for coming on again today and for going through this. I think that it was really, really um, enlightening to see what changes have been made and what are the most recent or current recommendations for the clinical practice guidelines of Meniere's disease. Thank you so much. Yeah, hot off the press. 2020, <laughs> these clinical practice guidelines came out. So thank you, Jeff, so much for taking us through them. And we look sure. forward to having you back soon for your Loda Dix Hall Pike discussion. We can't wait. Okay. All right. Sounds and I good. think I think I can think of some other topics too I want to pick your brain about. <laughs> yeah, the loaded the loaded Dix Hall Pike paper, by the way, if you're gonna tune into that podcast, the paper is available. It's through a free access journal. So you can PubMed if you go to pubmed.gov and you put in BPPV, it would be one of the recent articles that were released. Um, if you add my name to it, it should come up. It was published in the uh, International uh, Journal of, of Advanced Otology, which is right next to People Magazine at the grocery store. <laughs> we'll be sure to include the link to the article in our show notes as well, so you guys can find that um, easily. But we can't wait. We're excited. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks. you, Jeff, and thank Guys, you everyone for listening. I like, the, I like the work you're doing on the podcast. That's great. It's something we need in our profession. So thanks for your efforts, ladies. Thank, thank you. you. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources, including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and beep and BB treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.